of course, are from Nazi Germany in World War II with the slaughter of almost six million Jews by the hands of the nation. And it's interesting to me that shortly thereafter, the, the title or name that the Jewish people chose to give to that experience was Holocaust which is a Hebrew word, actually, which means whole burnt offering. And it taps into their Levitical code, their sacrificial code from the Old Testament where one of the offerings that you could bring to God was your animal or your grain. And unlike the other offerings where you would offer a portion or a piece, with this offering you would bring the whole thing and put it on the altar and light it up and burn the entire thing without remainder as an irrevocable gift to God. And it was the Jews coming out of World War II who chose this term for their own experience. The question of why. Why are we being irrevocably offered up as a sacrifice to you? This is a question that the Bible deals with deeply. And it runs contra the, the misconceptions and maybe popular ideas that some have that the Bible is a sanitized feel-good book or religious propaganda or, or, or something that doesn't delve. But what we see when we get into these weird songs and strange prayers of the Bible is that they're raw and they're honest and they wrestle deeply with these questions that matter most to the soul and, and particularly this question of why. And among all the, the weird songs and strange prayers that, that, that compile this this songbook called the Psalms. Psalm 22 stands out in a special way, is, is, is an example par excellence of the cries, laments, and questioning, the accusations people bring to God in their times of abandonment and suffering. So let's see how Psalm 22 wrestles with this. Together, And what I'd like to do is take you through this, this deep abiding song today. There are Bibles in your chairs, and I just really want to encourage you to follow with me. Psalm 22. Now, if you're there already, you'll see. If you're still flipping, that's okay. Um, but you'll notice shortly, it's long. 
standing at about 31 verses. And the difficulty in the Bible with anything that's long is it's easy to start zoning out. It's easy to start losing the train of thought. It's easy to start missing the forest because of the individual versification, because of the trees. So as we go through this today, what I'll do is give you an outline so we keep our eye on the ball, so we keep, keep rooted into where is the psalm writer taking us and hopefully make the most of what this psalm has to say. It begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, and I'm not silent. Where are you, God? It's the initial question, right? God, where are you? It's a question that isn't unique. God, where are you? Where are you in this? Where are you when I needed you? God, prove yourself. Because today, you are on trial. Have you ever asked this question? God, where are you? Have you ever been afraid to? Because you've thought it impious. The psalm writers did not. And with honesty of soul, they came to God pleading, questioning, and accusing. Where were you? Now, If you're looking in your Bibles at Psalm 22, you'll notice that after verse 2, there is kind of a a slight break, a little bit of white space. Do you see that? And if you pay attention closely as we go through this psalm together, you'll notice that the editors give us that little break of white space every now and then. What they're doing is breaking up units of thought or progression or steps that they're seeking for you to take as you go through this psalm, and it's on that basis that we'll look at it today. He begins verse 3 with the question, why save them and not me? Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. Have you ever found yourself in that place of suffering? in that place of feelings of abandonment. And someone who's well-meaning, or maybe even a church, comes to you, and what you hear or they tell you is examples of how God came and rescued someone else. And they mean it as a gesture of hope. But where you find yourself is saying, if God rescued them, then why not me? God, if you care about them, then why don't you care about me? If you would do that for them, why not me? 
It's the most natural human place to find yourself when you find yourself in a place enduring without relief despite the fact that others have been saved. Do you hear the accusation, the challenge that the psalm writers, God, you, our forefathers told you how you brought them out of Egypt. We heard the stories of how you delivered. Why not me? And then he answers his own question in verse 6. Because I'm a worm. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by men and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Why save them and not me? Because I'm a worm. That's why. Mocked and scorned. You can almost see the writer of this wrestling within himself with those questions of doubt, why, why would God bother with someone like me? Why should God care about someone like me? You sense almost this, this feeling of, of a self-examination gone to the extreme. I know who I am. And I dare not even be called a man. I'm a worm. That's why God doesn't save me. But the wrestling doesn't stop for the psalmist because he goes on in verse 9. But you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. So don't be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. I'm a worm, that's why you don't save me, but you made me. And even if I'm a worm, I'm your worm, God. You made me and you set me up from the beginning. You brought me into this world, you gave me life, and you threw me upon yourself from the beginning, and now you pull away? No, God, being a worm does not allow this. You made me. Save me. You almost feel, don't you, the way that the psalm writer's wrestling within himself. And I find that when people suffer and suffer deeply and chronically, that wrestling, that war, the voices competing and arguing with each other in the psyche seem to come to the fore, don't they? Trying to figure out, trying to make sense of it, trying to find an answer, a reason, a solution to the fundamental question they ask, God, where are you? He goes on. And in verse 12, what he does is he begins to describe his situation in his pain. Keep in mind that as we read these, this is poetry. 
And so what he's doing is giving images and metaphors to describe the situation he's in. So in verse 12, when he says, many bulls surround me, he ain't in the ring bullfighting, okay? He's describing his enemies. He's describing his situation. He's describing the things that he finds himself surrounded by with the ferocity and terror as if you're surrounded by bulls themselves. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water. Have you ever felt poured out? And my, bo- my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength, it's dried up. I've got nothing left. Like a potsherd. Something broken and brittle and decayed. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust. I'm dirt. I'm a dead man. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. I can feel. Have you ever felt pain in that kind of way? I can count all my bones because every single one cries out in agony. And people stare and they gloat at me like some freak or something to be pitied. But no, they divide my garments among them. They're They're casting lots for my clothing, willing to take every last bit from me when I'm down. His situation and his pain. Now look what he does next in verse 19. We hear it again. Save me, but you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver me, deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of those dogs. Rescue me from the mouths of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. God, save me. At which point, this weird song, this strange prayer begins to take a shift. In verse 22, look what he says. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. Why? Because he is not disdained or despised the suffering of the afflicted one. God has not despised or disdained the suffering. He has not turned a blind eye to the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. It's odd that within the middle of this song, after this deep outpouring of accusation and struggle and lament, that he turns to a place of trust and faith proclaimed. 
holding on maybe even to a fool's hope that God is not ignoring me. But God hears. It's odd, isn't it? We live in a world where God does not always step in to stop people from doing wrong to others. We might want God to do that, and we might wish he would have made the world that way, but he hasn't. The psalmist seems to grasp that God, in fact, does see, and that God, in fact, does hear, and that the abandonment of God is not the idea that God has somehow forgotten or left or gone away, but instead something very different, that God all the time is there and watching and yet doing nothing. We might wish we lived in a world where God did it the other way, but the psalmist seems to realize that we do not. And while sometimes God does intervene, sometimes he does not. And he goes on. Verse 25. From you comes the theme of my praise. Every bit of faith, every bit of hope, every bit of challenge I feel courageous enough to bring you. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you will I fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Put this way, you, God, are the reason that I dare to hope. You're the reason for my hope. You are the king. And because you are the king and you are on the throne, I know that what I face is not outside of your power or control. All the riches of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. What the psalm ends with is this idea of reversal for us. That means glory for God. That God's glory is not displayed in our misery. And that God doesn't magnify himself by keeping us down. But instead a hope that he holds out that there will come a day of reversal. A day when things will change. Because God has accomplished it. God has made it happen. Psalm 22 then is this deep lament, this cry and this accusation to God. 
that shifts from pouring the heart out with God, where are you? To in the midst of it with suffering, still continuing, holding on in hope that God one day will come through. That's a hard thing to do, isn't it? When you find yourself in that place, crying out, God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To no answer on the other side. It's a psalm, a song, a prayer of some of the deepest suffering and deepest cries in the midst of it. Of humanity. And yet a psalm of power and hope in the midst of it. Which brings us to Jesus. Because what's fascinating is that Jesus chooses to step in to Psalm 22. Everything that we've read and everything that we've kind of scoped and seen. If you read the accounts of Jesus, the stories of Jesus, and when he comes to that place of crucifixion and he's hanging on the cross, steps in to Psalm 22, quoting it and experiencing it every step of the way. I encourage you, read Matthew 27, read John 19, read Luke 23 and Mark 15, and the way that all these gospel writers draw on the meaning of what Jesus is doing. It's fascinating to me that when Jesus is hanging on the cross, the very words out of his mouth, some of you know it and say it with me, are this, my God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? That Jesus himself comes and cries this out. It's fascinating to me that everything that this psalm describes describes about the enemies surrounding me, the roaring lions looking to tear me like prey, being poured out like water with bones out of joint, with strength depleted and gone, with hands and feet pierced, with those staring, gloating, and mocking, and dividing my clothes for lots, Jesus experiences and steps in to every aspect of this psalm. That Jesus knows what it's like to feel the abandonment of God. That Jesus experienced what it's like to be in that place of intense suffering, crying out to God, it's not supposed to be this way for God to simply watch on. He knew what it was like to be kicked when he was down, scorned and mocked by everyone around him while he suffered alone In his pain, he knew what it was like to lose heart, to have fear grip him, 
to feel like his will and resolve like wax, melted away. And yet through it, like the psalm says, Jesus held on. And he held on because he knew God. And he held on for you. As the psalm puts it, I will fulfill my vows. Jesus kept the course all the way in obedience to God and for the sake of you because he knew that God was king. And he knew that the day would come when God would reverse all things. I find it no mistake that other New Testament writers, drawing on the psalmist language of things about all who go down to the dust will kneel before him, will say of Jesus that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in the earth and on the earth and under the earth that Jesus is Lord. And as the psalm ends, for he has done it, it is no surprise to me that Jesus' final words on the cross, if you know it, you can say it with me, are this. It is finished. It is accomplished. I have done it. When God came to earth, is Jesus It was to step into suffering. God did not see the suffering that you endure and the brokenness of the world and abandoned it. Wipe it away. Leave it to its own devices and go far, far away. Instead, he did something radically different. He stepped into the suffering. He stepped into your suffering. Because Psalm 22 takes sin seriously. Because it takes brokenness seriously. And it's that which Jesus steps into for you. Which means when we suffer and we cry out, God, where are you? We can have hope that while it may not yet go away, there is a God who is here suffering with me too. Which moves us into this idea of reconciliation. This idea that God reconciles us to him through suffering One earlier follower of Jesus will put it this way. Once you were alienated from God, abandoned, forsaken, far away, removed, and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. But now, now God has reconciled you. The good news is that God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death that God has reconciled you by suffering for you. Now, here's what's fascinating to me about this psalm. Remember, as we've been saying all along, we read it, but Jesus would have sung it. We read it, 
but to the ancients, these were songs that were meant to be sung. And man, how we crave to just kind of know, like, how did he sing it? Now, I want to show you something at the beginning of Psalm 22, something we didn't look at at the beginning, but a little ascription that you find in the Bible, not by editors today, but that goes to the ancient past of these texts. And it gives the, the director of music a cue for how it's supposed to be sung. Look at the beginning of Psalm 22. Okay, did you read it? Here's what it says, right? For the director of music, to the tune of the doe of the morning, a psalm of David. Let's talk about that. The doe of the morning, or if you're reading the ESV, the doe of the dawn, all right? When you hear that, what kind of tune does that conjure up? Like, right, 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 we've got, we got deers prancing, and we've got, we've got the morning light. I mean, you get like this vision of like Bambi prancing in the meadow, don't you? The best equivalent I could come up with is there's this old Good Friday hymn. Maybe you've heard it. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted, right? Stricken, smitten, and afflicted. I'm still singing it too fast. See him dying on the tree. Right? It is the most heavy, lamented, heartbroken song there is. But now hear it this way. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Fa-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la. It completely changes things, doesn't it? You never knew you could sing it that way. Welcome to Good Friday at Fellowship of Faith 2017. What does this mean, this tune? We sing this to the doe of the morning? Now, no one knows how these tunes went for sure. But I think we can speculate a few things. Unless it's utterly ironic, I think we can speculate a few things from its meaning. Let's go with the imagery. Deer. Wild. Beautiful. Mysterious. Free. The morning. New start. New beginning. The night is over. Right? God's new day dawning. Hope. Life. Victory. Aren't these the ideas, the images, and the feelings that come with words like these? I want to submit to you today that when Jesus and the people of old sang Psalm 22, it might not be so much like the whale that we heard in the beginning, but might instead have been sung in a very different way. I'm going to play you a clip in just a moment. Hang on. In just a moment. First, I just want to read you the words from one little piece. And hear the Psalm 22 lament in them. This song is about God. I waited for you today, but you didn't show. No, 
No, no, I needed you today, so where did you go? You told me to call, said you'd be there, and though I haven't seen you, are you still there? Doesn't it feel like the beginning of Psalm 22? I cried out with no reply, and I can't feel you by my side. So I'll hold on to what I know, that you're here and I'm never alone. It sounds like the end of Psalm 22, doesn't it? Hear it to this tune or this version of Doe of the Morning. That's no lament. Psalm 22 is a power ballad. That's not a song of brokenness. That's a song of grit and determination. That is a song of deep abiding hope that holds on in the times of greatest abandonment and suffering and loss. It is a song of power. It is a song of hope. It is a song that clings to the promise of deliverance and victory. It's Psalm 22. And this is what the psalmist invites us into. To come to terms with the deepest of our sufferings in the most raw and honest ways and to come to terms with the deepest of our disappointments and questions for God in the most deep and abiding ways. But in the midst of it, to turn in faith and hope to a God who is king, who has done it, and will one day deliver and save. Ellie Weisel, a survivor of the Nazi concentration camps, wrote a poem, a play actually, in which the Jewish people brought God on trial, brought him on war charges of abandonment and neglect of his people in a time of need. And the play unfolds with witness after witness after witness coming forward. God, where were you? And when the trial was done, the verdict was given. 
And in Ellie Weisel's play, God was found guilty. And yet just after the sentence was issued, the bell rang. And they realized it was time for their afternoon prayers. And they left the courtroom to call on God and cry out to God in faith and trust and hope. Welcome to Psalm 22. If you find yourself in that place, may it be the same for you. Stacy is going to come forward and lead us in a song. And um, as she does, I want to share with you these lyrics briefly so that when we encounter them, maybe it can tap something in us as well. Somebody's hurt. Somebody's aching. Somebody trying to find a way heavy heart can break your will. A troubled soul leaves time still standing. So if you're hurting, please don't hide. Lift up your head, I'm on your side. When every mountain seems too high, when every river looks too wide, when my dreams are lost at sea. Jesus rescues me. Invite you to rise. Let's sing it with them.